It's Sunday, June 5th, and you're listening to Peanuts and Popcorn. PNP is a baseball podcast interrupted by a movie discussion between two old friends. I'm Tom Hockney. And I'm Leo Fontana. This week on Peanuts and Popcorn, the Philadelphia Phillies fire Joe Girardi, while the Los Angeles Dodgers use Pride Month as a platform to right an ancient wrong. Jim Cott puts his foot, foot in his mouth again. We'll talk about the Cubs and the Sox and our popcorn discussion in the wake of the passing of Ray Liotta is on the Martin Scorsese classic, Goodfellas. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. How are you? Man, I'm all right. Uh, tomorrow, I just want to mention, is June 6th. Right. And that is, uh, well, basically the anniversary of D-Day when the uh, Americans and the British and the Canadians uh, invaded the Normandy coast in an effort to basically end the war and bring the war to Adolf Hitler. Eventually, 78th anniversary. 78th anniversary. It's uh largest amphibious invasion ever, right. ever conducted. Before and, or since. Yeah. And we want to recognize the men who sacrificed their lives so that the European continent could be free and so that we could be free here in our country. So, and also the women that also supported World War II uh, as well. You know, every day, um, more and more of these guys and gals are passing away. Yeah. So it becomes, it, 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 and, and also in light of the, our world events, I think it's even more important that we never forget what happened um, all those years ago, because as was so eloquently put in flags of our fathers, you know, these young 20 year old Marines, uh, that they, they didn't know that they were, you know, keeping democracy alive for at least another hundred years anyways, who knows what's going to happen the next hundred, but that, you know, really a lot of these guys never kissed a girl. They never had a chance and they, and they basically walked into a meat grinder over there. So, um, I'll never forget what they did. And, um, I think America is a much better place because of it. I think you're absolutely right. All right. So let's uh, get to some other things that are happening. I'm, I'm participating today. I'm playing in the mixed doubles 3.5 level of the Alzheimer's Association Pickleball Tournament in Highland Park this morning. Which and is I, ironic because if you asked me to repeat that, I couldn't remember what you just said. <laughs> and the great thing about pickleball is it's so it's wonderful if you have Alzheimer's because you're always invariably you forget the score when you're wow. playing. Like you have a big point and you're like, what's the score again? I don't know. Was it six, seven? What is it? Yeah. And it's just, it's hilarious, but it's a great, uh, it, it, well, this is my first time playing in this. I understand it's a great event. It's been really fun. I was looking through the draw yeah. and uh, this guy I went to high school with, who lives in Highland Park, he's playing in it. And uh, I went out and played with him actually a couple days ago. So I went out to Highland Park and, and, and sort of got my feet wet out there. He's really good player. If we match up against him and his partner, we're going to get crushed. But, uh, you know, I play with a lot of heart. I play with a lot of pride. So I'm going to just go out there and do my thing, you know. Well, and also for our fan out there, um, it is on ESPN 47 uh, this morning. <laughs> in case you want to tune in. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, then another thing happened. So we live, our house, our backyard backs up onto Lake Avenue here in Glenview. And Lake Avenue is a pretty busy street, but we have one of these 
barriers that the city put up and then we have these trees along the line to kind of dampen the noise so i'm driving home on lake and i'm passing right where lake passes by our house and suddenly the traffic all slows down and everybody's putting on the brakes and everybody's trying to merge left and a car a lexus crashed into the barrier there the guardrail and then into the barrier and it was on its side and the car was completely totaled um and it, when I did the barrier out, get hurt the barrier got completely like the guardrail was completely dented and the barrier we're, we're getting it looked at um and then maybe the city has to come out or the the village has to maybe come out and uh, repair this because yeah. that's their deal but there was there was just debris all over lake avenue and so i drove home came around i'm like hey you guys just this just happened and my family was already out there you know because wow. they were home they heard the whole thing yeah. and they were talking to some of the people involved it was i said it was a lexus it was an infinity that was just given to a teenager as a graduation present and oh he every every june there's these stories of, yeah. of cars wrapped around trees by young kids and while i feel i feel terrible for the kid mm -hmm. i really yeah. However, this was actually a good thing as far as my own family is concerned because I could not have arranged for a better object lesson oh, for yeah. my own yeah. children when they finally do get a car or get their licenses. Right. For William, that's going to be within the year. So, And by the way, fear is a great uh, teaching tool. Yeah. Uh, in, in in this regards, because basically your job as parents, we've taught, discussed this before, is is to you know present them to the world at some point as adults, educated adults, and ready to uh, contribute to society. And you don't want to have these tragedies like like I don't was this kid hurt that no time? thank God no one was hurt because, because he airbag. was in a very he was in an expensive car with big daddy airbags that's why. That's right. Uh, that's right. And, and so, well, that, then that's good. But again, it's just, this is that time of year where you have yeah. proms and car crashes. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, scary stuff. It really is. Here's the thing, Girardi's gone, but does that make the bullpen better? Does that make the hitting better? I don't know. I mean, the man had a World Series ring, so obviously I was in off the bat, but like, I don't know. No one has heart. I, I don't know what to do. We got Castellanos, we got Schwarber. I don't know what else we can do. It's a long it's a long time coming. Yeah. Yeah. Good riddance. We're 10 games out, 11 games out. It's it's a shame, but we got to move on. I was shocked when I woke up today. Uh, kind of good news in my opinion. I mean, I feel like we spent a lot of money. The team's underachieving, and I think it's a good move for the future, and hopefully it pays off in the long run. Let's get on to the baseball, and we'll begin with uh, the general manager of the Phillies, Dave Dombrowski. Fired Joe Girardi as the Phillies have been just not good this year. They were expected to contend. They spent a ton of money on guys like Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos. And, and they haven't caught the ball. They haven't pitched well. And they're well out of the race. The Mets have completely run away with it. And, uh, and, and something had to happen. So I'm sure that this will just solve all their problems. Don't you think, Tom? <laughs> well, I, 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 Part of what you say I, I take exception to in the sense that they're five games under 500, and yes, they're, uh, what are they, they're 11 games out of first place, but I don't think the season is over for them yet. I still think, um, like, 
as I call him as an ex-Tiger fan, Dombrowski, um, yeah. was saying in the press conference that it's not too late for the for the Phillies this year. I agree with that statement. What I what I don't agree with Dombrowski on is that yeah, Girardi, yeah, Girardi is, is yeah, yeah, you had to make a call, and he's a he's a Martinet. In a in a in a in a time when that style of managing just doesn't play as well, unless you've got a Casey Stengel like experience with your team as being such great players, they don't have that in Philadelphia. And like we've talked about all year long, they're terrible defensively. Yeah, and they they are also um, something that Dombrowski is known for that he did in uh, uh, Detroit and he did it in Boston, and that is weak bullpens. He's, he's always uh, put all of his chips on big daddy sluggers, thinks, you know, uh, Prince Fielder, these types of moves, and not enough on the back end of bullpens. And in Detroit, we had Scherzer and Verlander. Think about that. Yeah. Scherzer and Verlander. Oh. And that in given stretches when Annabelle Sanchez was pitching even better than both of those guys, you know, they had like three shutout able pitchers in a row, but bullpens that gave it up every single time. And Dabrowski eventually was, you know, left Detroit or was forced out, however you want to look at it, and moved on to Boston. He kind of did the same exact thing. And, and so, I agree with uh, the the uh, the athletic article that you know at some point, like my father said to me, and I've said this on the show before, he used to say to me re regularly, "What's wrong, little Tommy? Is the whole world wrong again?" And you're right. And that's <laughs> what I would say to Dombrowski. Yeah. You know, at what point is the problem you, you know, it, it's and again, I'm no big fan. I would have I agree with Theo. He wouldn't hire Girardi. If you remember, there's yeah, certain right. modern um, management teams believe that he's a relic. He, he's he's a manager of the past, not of the future. That being said, I don't think it's all his fault. I no, just it's think not his you, fault. It's you, not you've his got fault. you've got a. Um, Poor defensive team. You said their pitching is actually the pitching is their strong suit. They have great starting pitching. They just have a terrible bullpen, and they can't. They they're as bad as the White Sox trying to field yeah. the baseball. Yeah. Uh, I'll put it to you like that. So well, I mean, I wanted Schwarber. You know, I like Kyle Schwarber a lot. Me too, man. He's a little Babe Ruth guy. Who doesn't like the guy? You know, and I like Nicholas Castellanos as well. And I wanted right. them to succeed, but you know. You look at that, it, it's just it's those two really, should not be on the same team. Yeah, one should. of the what their skill sets a, a team can only afford to have a one guy like that. That's yeah. what I think. So one guy like that, certainly playing on defense. Yes, yes. You know. All right, so um, let's move to the Los Angeles Dodgers. We'll go to the other coast, and this is the team. Uh, I'll remind everyone that this is the team that broke the color barrier by signing and playing Jackie Robinson way back in 1947. But uh, one of their players in the 70s and the 80s, Glenn Burke, uh, this is a player who was gay. Uh, his teammates certainly knew about it, but when Dodger management found out about it, they traded him to the Oakland A's, who later released him, and he never really made the majors, even though I think he had only one major league home run he was a tremendous physical specimen. He was unbelievably strong and gifted athletically. Okay. He was great at baseball. He was great at basketball. Uh, he later on contracted the AIDS virus and died okay. due to complications associated with it. And uh, 
the Dodgers, I guess, are having um, on during Pride Month, they're bringing in uh, his family to Dodger Stadium and they're going to recognize him. And I don't know what the purpose of it is to apologize, perhaps, or I don't yes. know, or to recognize. So, but, so, so Burke was the first openly gay. He's not the first gay Major League Baseball player, but he was the first openly gay player. Yeah. And so there, there's two big villains in this story. And the first one is Al Campanis, yeah. who has had a who was just a bad guy. He, he was a bad guy in, in, in the pantheon of baseball. He's one of he was one of the evil characters, ironically, on the Dodgers that broke the color barrier. was so O'Malley was so progressive in it, actually had a guy who was kind of a a subversive racist and 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 yeah. once camp uh it's my understanding that many dodger players knew that he was gay some guys had problems with it but some guys did it they they yeah. you know base, basically a baseball team or any professional team they just want to win at the end of the day i think ultimately that trumps everything and so um it, it, you know they they get rid of they, Campaneris gets rid of him. He goes to the A's and he runs into Billy Martin. Yeah. Right. And as soon as Billy Martin found out that he was gay, that was the death knell for Burke's uh, career. Yeah. Um, and um, that to me is the biggest tragedy. Basically, he was blackballed, um, and and this sent him on a downward spiral. That it wasn't uh, that necessarily that he caught AIDS from um, being gay. It's entirely possibly got it from drug use because yes, he, that's he, true too. Yeah, you know, he had a serious drug problem, and so um, it's just a it's a tragedy all the way around. And now it's you know it's almost an accepted thing if if players were, were you know do come on. I still think that they struggle doing it, but I also think that players know when other players are gay, and that this has been going on for a hundred years. This this is not. It's just that. Men right. couldn't talk about this back then, or women. You know, Billie Jean King kind of weighs in on this story, too. Um, but it's the same kind of thing. People were persecuted. And and maybe no, maybe what the Dodgers are trying to say is we got a right or wrong. This is yeah. this was yeah, wrong. This is terrible. Happened. Billie Jean King even said, you know, I wish I had known that he, you know, I wish I had known more about this, that I could have yeah. reached out to him, that I right. could have maybe done something or said something to, yeah. I don't know. But it, it is a sad story. I'm glad that the Dodgers are recognizing uh, that they did something wrong. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and you're right. I mean, as long as there are baseball players, they're going to be gay baseball players. Right. As long right. as there are basketball players, there will be gay basketball players. They just won't necessarily be living out in the open, you know. And uh, it, it, it until I, I, I look forward to a time where a baseball player can say, hey, I'm gay. Right, and right, right. and the rest of the league says good for you. It's yeah. no or deal. or so what? Or so right. what? And let's go win some ball games. Exactly. You know, and uh, I look forward to that day. That day has not yet come. No, and but, I, I, you know, I've, it's it's kind of like the race issues in the United States. I'm not so convinced we'll live to see it, but yeah. I, hopefully at some point, you know, a hundred years from now, we're going to be past some of the what what they probably will consider to be trivial. At that yeah. point, like, really, you guys actually sweated over this stuff? It's like, for example, I watch a lot of this TV show called The First 48, which follows these murderers and, and these different cop uh, detective teams around the country, uh, primarily Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
And it blows my mind how many people have lost their lives because of marijuana. I, I mean, it's 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 an extraordinary number. So it's and, and when you think about it, and I bet you hundreds of years from now, people will be like, I can't believe that they actually killed each other over this stuff. Yeah. But yet it happened. And and it's, you know, it really is. And so sp- speaking of kind of boorish, bad behavior, um, Hall of Fame inductee. Jim, Jim Cott. Cott, which, by yeah. the way, it's a whole separate subject of why it took this guy so long to make the Hall of Fame. Because if you look at his numbers, it kind of defies logic with 286 wins and 16 gold gloves, you know, blah, 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 blah. But but he did something really bad this week. Why don't you uh, tell our listener what that well, was? Well, he, he was he was uh, he's the Minnesota Twins broadcaster and they were playing the Yankees. Yeah. And Nestor Cortez for the Yankees was on the mound and he called him Nestor the Molester. Now, I mean, 20, 30, 40 years ago, Nestor the Molester. Well, that, that's what? a reference to Hustler Magazine's Chester yeah. the Molester, which was. Oh, is, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, which oh, was. Not a, a, I, I, the only reason why I, I've never seen a Hustler Magazine, but I read a book about someone that saw one. Um, but, um, it, you know, Cott is like Jack Morris, um, like a lot of guys from that era. These guys. Um, they don't know that they're speaking. Yeah, they, they're not they, aware. They, this is kind of like a, um, a tone deafness that 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 I even find myself as I'm getting older that I, I can start to see why you know people get called grumpy old men. I mean, it, it and yeah. not that Cot was this. He was trying to do a tongue in cheek thing, and what Jack Morris did was even more so because Morris had to be told that what he did was wrong. He didn't let he didn't he didn't even understand that you know you can't make Asian stereotype jokes. This isn't the sixth. You're not Don Rickles, buddy. You can't. It's, this is a different world that we live in, and so. I don't think Cot's a bad guy. In fact, I've, I've always thought he was kind of a tragic figure until he was a, put into the correctly put into the Hall of Fame. Um, but it, you can't say stuff like that. I, no, I, 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 I mean, even I wonder if it's a thing. I don't. You're a school teacher. I'm sure there's moments when you say a line and you go, "Oh, I wish I wouldn't have said it like that." I, you know, and, and I'll bet you. If he's got any kind of self-reflection whatsoever, that could have been a line where he was like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. But you got to keep proceeding on. You know, you yeah. don't want to have a, a, a Tom Brenneman situation on your hands where, you know, you're speaking the real truth and thinking that the mic is off. And and Cortez was like completely nonplussed. He was just like, it's no big deal. The star let's, of let's... my fantasy team, I might add. <laughs> How are you doing, by the way? I'm in first place. I'll be oh. seven and two after this week. I've scored the most points in any of our three three leagues as part of our limited our LLC. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't slap anybody. That's all. Yeah. I have to say. No, but but I, but in all all seriousness aside, though, in regards to Cot, I mean, I you know he 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 we're getting kind of used to uh, maybe almost um, um, accustomed to these uh, faux pas. And then the either the Twitter apology or the or the, you know, falling on my sword type of apology in the media to kind of cover up. I don't think Cot's going anywhere except the Cooperstown. Yeah. Right. Next right. month. <laughs> and that's fine. And that's fine. But but I don't know how much longer they're going to have him on their broadcast. I really don't, you know, but well, uh, but anyway, let's move on to Chicago baseball. Yeah. And uh, the Cubs got a glimpse or Cubs fans got a glimpse of the future 
uh, in yesterday's doubleheader against the Cardinals. They're playing a five-game series against the Redbirds. I think this was due to a COVID series that had been canceled or something, or the Cardinals had COVID, couldn't play, or bad weather or whatever. But the point is is that uh, Caleb Killian started the nightcap. This is the guy that they acquired in the Chris Bryant trade to San Francisco, and the guy looked really good. Well, he's but part of the, the future. Front he's end one. of the doubleheader, they had this guy Shorma who pitched for the Cubs, and he looked excellent, and they got the yeah. win. So uh, I think that with these two guys, I mean, if things sort of shake out right, the Cubs might have the core for a pretty good pitching staff in years to come. There's no Well, I would hope so. I mean, I, I would hope that the purge of last summer of the, of the championship players – um, would yield at least one great player. I I, yeah. I I thought, you know, they were talking in terms, but it could be more than that. This guy, Killian, is at the top of that list. And yeah. the, you, they, the Cubs can be accused of maybe bringing him on a little too quickly because the thought was he wasn't going to be ready until next year. However, I think that this is a sinking ship season, and they should try anything that this is a, a great season to experiment. Yeah. Now I yeah. will tell you, we're. I know we really took cover the Cubs and the White Sox, but I also follow the Tigers. And of those three teams, right now the Cubs are the best of those three teams. Wow. Um, and, and that's not saying much, but but the, we'll talk about the Sox in a second and what is expected out of them and how poorly they are underperforming. Same thing with Detroit; they can't score a run if their life depended on it. But the Cubs, believe it or not, they have. There's a couple of interesting things going on with the Cubs, and one of them is their offense. Their yeah. offense is um, it, it, it's, it's explosive. It's explosive at times. Yeah. And this guy Christopher Morrell, God, yeah. what a wonderful player. This kid, yeah. yep. just you know, his enthusiasm is so infectious, and it just makes them fun to watch, even though they're not winning a great deal. Right. They're still interesting, and there's a set, there's a good reason to go to the ballpark every day, I think. Yeah, and, and again, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next two seasons in regards to these players that uh, were part of that are, that we yielded as as a result of the the purge of last summer. Um, but I anticipate that that you know once Hayward goes, yeah, and I don't know when that is. I, I you know I, might be I, next year. Yeah, would they ever consider just cutting him? I don't know. Prior to the contract being up, it doesn't seem like that based on yeah. what they're paying. Yeah. Which again, if if he's on the team next year, then you almost have to consider that next year's they're not going to be really competing too much either. Um, just based on that fact, to me, they need to ace no face and just cut. They they should just cut him outright. He he's not starting anymore. No, he's not. And, and so. It's just it's it's a real they're in a tough spot there. Um, well, and I have to say, you know, the Cubs have been accused of a lot of bad deals over the years. That's one of the worst ones. I, I hate to say it. And his his value in that World Series, that speech that he gave, that maybe yeah. is the value of the contract. Yeah, in, the, in, the, in that speech that won them maybe won them yeah. the World Series. The rain delay speech yeah. that was Newt Rockney like. I wish somebody had a video of it, but I heard players saying. People were ready to run through a wall after that little spiel. Um, and obviously, we won the World Series. So um, that I'll be into. And, and also, let's. Hayward's a, a above average fielder, a hell of a great guy, but he just yeah. couldn't hit. And, and it was a huge disappointment. 
huge. I'm sorry. And and I never could. I mean, you watch him year after year after year, and you see him hit a hard ground ball to second base time and time again. (laughs) Right. And and you're wondering, what is it? Why is this guy who's such a beautiful athlete, who is one of the greatest defensive right fielders I've ever seen? I've seen him make throws that were just inhuman, you know? Why could he not hit if he could just hit a little bit? I mean, if he could have gotten his average up above 250, if his OPS was in the high 700s, he would have been fine. They would have been able to keep him on the roster. That would have been enough production to make it all worthwhile. But it just never happened. He had a year and a half great hitting in Atlanta early in his career, and he parlayed that into a huge big deal well and he had the the year in st louis before he came to the cubs he had a very good year offensively after the braves had traded him to the cubs he was very good for the traded him to the cardinals he was very good for the cardinals and then the the cubs signed him and it was like oh here we are taking away the assets from st louis and they they just never he just never produced for us i don't know it's hard he, he never did and and you know i like I said, I my only slam again, it's, it's interesting. When we talk about the teams, we're going to talk about the Sox here in a second. Um, I don't, I'm not as, even though I am very critical of the, of the management of the Cubs for saying that they were going to be competitive, I knew damn well they were going to be competitive. They, they, they have to say that to their season ticket holders. Whereas the issue on the South side, or as you posed the question, watching a, a bad team at Wrigley Field versus watching a bad team at guaranteed third rate field, which is easier or harder, depending on your perspective, to, to kind of uh, stomach or live through? I'll well, I, there's no first. question that it Wrigley Field, by far, is the better place or the easier place to watch a bad team. Most of the games or, or a lot of the games are during the day, in the warm weather, in the sun, in the summer. The neighborhood is more interesting. You meet people from out like, like when the Cubs are bad, what you get is you get a lot of fans from the other team come yeah. to the, come to Wrigley and they see the right. game. And and so you chat up those people and you meet people from out of town and you're like, oh, yeah, hey, do you know this? And, you know, and yeah. I don't know, it, it, it's it's easier to get in and out of on foot. You know what I mean? I, maybe, maybe it's better to say it like this. If my Tigers were in first or the Sox were in first and they're both of those teams were playing very well. We'd be much harder on the Cubs. Let's be honest. Yeah, we would be much. Perhaps. But the yeah. fact is, the Cubs are the best of those teams yeah. right now. And so they get a pass because, well, you're not what we thought and certainly not what we were sold last summer. But you're treading water. You're you're kind of sticking around. And there's some interesting things going on. You've got some interesting players. And outside of that drubbing on Friday, which I watched parts of it, you know, basically the Cubs are leading three to nothing. Boom, they're losing nine to four. Whoa, what, right. what, what, what was that all about? I mean, and that, it, um, I'm still not sold on Marcus Stroman. I'm just going to throw that out there. I think that he means well. I think he wants to pitch well, but. Um, pitch is well. So, it's always like one inning that undoes him. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> He's like and, Frank Castillo. You're right. He pitches three or four really good innings, and then boom, the wheels fall off like you like you can't even believe. So like he starts. I don't know. He starts. He can't. He loses his command. I think Strowman could be a part of the future. We just kind of have to see how it goes. 
But yeah. uh, but but on the other hand, you know, if, on the other side of the city, I mean, the White Sox carrying the weight of expectations of winning the World Series are worse than they were last year. Yeah. You know, and uh, now you can you can blame La Russa, you can blame Rick Hahn, you can blame injuries. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this team isn't good, and it is a collective failure on a lot of levels why this team isn't more successful. But, uh, but you know, I, I think that given both stadiums and both fan bases, I think it's a lot more fun to watch a bad team at Wrigley Field than it is on the south side. Well, that's, let's just say we had a century to get used to how to do that. Anyway, yeah, that's true. We, yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, but I will say that the, the Sox um, – have an interesting, well, they have a couple of interesting problems. And I, and I, I good friends of mine that are Sox fans are now, are now starting to call for La Russa to be fired. Yeah. They will, you know, they think that it's, uh, that it's time. It's time now that, that, that he's part of the problem. And particularly like we've discussed in the past, he struggles in these night games. The, the later these games are played, the more, you know, yeah. he starts to look like the Crip Creek keeper out there. I mean, it's it just, it, 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 he's going to be 78 in a few months. He, it, it's just too old. To, you know, you're, first of all, you're already in the Hall of Fame. You know, go, go play golf. You know, you know who's going to replace him? You know who gets my vote anyway to replace him? Who's that? Harris, the third base coach for the Chicago Cubs. He's played for the White Sox. Yeah. He's played for the Cubs. He's enthusiastic. He's energetic. Yeah, I, mean, I think they're going to go for a Kapler type guy myself. I'm not so sure that, that you know, because Harris is kind of part of the old world baseball. I, I think that they they want to kind of get away from that. So I'd be surprised if they made that hire. My point is, is that the White Sox certainly have not gotten off to a good start. And they may yet turn it around. However, it's difficult for me to imagine a scenario that they can get back on track. Well, being three games under 500 is not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is the run differential is a minus 57, which is just as bad as the Tigers, who are a worse team than the Sox. Basically, they're indistinguishable by stats. That's why yeah. I'm saying the Cubs are actually a better team of those three teams. The, the Sox have, they have two big problems, and it, it's similar to the Phillies. They can't field the baseball very well. And that's kind of the way the team has been built. I mean, at some point you have to look at how did you acquire players? Well, you acquired a bunch of DHs. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. You you have uh, Louis Robert, who is a phenomenal defensive player, but he can't play the whole outfield. And and the rest of the Sox outfield is ordinary or below average. Even though I will tell you, I think Jimenez has gotten better. I can't believe I'm saying this. I think he's actually improved. And I saw Moncada yesterday, I think, make a play that was not like a Brooks Robinson-like play. So you see these flashes uh, uh, defensively. It's just not enough. I do think when Lance Lynn comes back in a couple weeks, it's going to give the Sox a boost. Is it going to be enough? I just think there's better teams in the American League. I I just don't think the Sox are going to make the playoffs at this stage. And even if they did, they could be it would be a one and done candidate in my mind. I just don't think they this. When you see the Yankees as as strong as they are and as strong as Houston is, um, you know, and t- even in within their own division with Toronto and Tampa Bay, I, it's just the Sox are not in the, the when they. And the other thing too, 
I'm not going to beat another dead horse. But the Sox, until you can have a winning record against teams that are 500 and above, which you do not, yeah. um, you can't be considered a good team. I'm sorry. You struggled with this last year. It's glaring. They're, this they're year. mediocre to below average, and uh, it, it's not pretty. It really isn't. All right. So that concludes our peanuts discussion. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. I know I'd go from rags to riches. To me, being a gangster was better than being president of the United States. Never ride on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. It meant being somebody in the neighborhood that was full of nobodies. I'm in construction. If we wanted something, we just took it. And you didn't even think about it. To us, it was better than Citibank. For most of the guys, killings got to be accepted. It was a glorious time. In a world that's powered by violence, on the streets where the violent have power, a new generation carries on an old tradition. Right to the popcorn. And I'm sure our listener is aware that uh, Ray Liotta passed uh, a couple weeks ago. And as a result, Tom selected the movie this week, which was Leota's greatest movie and one of the greatest movies ever made, and that's Goodfellas. And I'm glad he did this because I watched it again this week. And man, I'm completely blown away by this film every single time I see it. How each scene is crafted in a way that you just cannot take your eyes off of it for some reason. It's yeah. either the way it's filmed or something that an actor is doing or an actress is doing, uh, a perspective you're seeing, and you're just floored at how good it all is. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, I think it's an American classic. It's 29th on my list. <clears throat> wow. I don't, th- I, don't think, I don't think it's Scorsese's best film, but I think it's one of his best films. I, I will tell you that, um, you know, I recently... I, I think I said off the show, we recently upgraded our, our garage bar um, yeah. screen and projector. So we watched this film on a big, big screen. And it was just like when I originally saw it in the theater. That's yeah. you really need to see it on, a, on a, as big a screen as you possibly uh, can. But uh, this is just one of those films that, um, it, you know, it. it if you look at um, Ebert and Siskel, like e- Ebert claims that this is the best gangster film ever made. I think you he's, can make, right. he's right. I, you can make the argument that it is. I, I don't think it's better than The Godfather, only because The Godfather had to exist for Goodfellas to be made. You know what I mean? Yeah, like one yeah. kind of birth. The, but but it's certainly in the discussion without, without a, a doubt. And Martin is such a great, iconic uh you know, movie director, by the time this came out, the idea that this lost to uh, Driving Miss Daisy for Best Picture That's is almost, crazy. it's almost silly today silly. when you think That's about it, which that was a fine film in, in its own right, but it's just not, 
um, not this film. And it, I it's just the movie I picked for this for next week. But uh, yeah, well, you know, the thing is, um, we did this to pay homage to Le- to Leota. And going back and seeing this film now for the first time in probably 15 or 16 years, uh, which um, it, it it I didn't realize what a great performance this guy gives. And yeah. it was so great that he was a little bit snubbed when it came to the Oscars, because while Lorraine Bracco, uh, who played his wife, Karen, was nominated for Best Supporting Actress and Joe Pesci did win Best Supporting Actor. And rightly so. He he was electrifying and stole the film in every scene he was in. Um, you could make the case that Leota should have been nominated for Best Actor, but it was beca- because he really was the lead in the film. He wasn't a supporting actor. But it was because, you know, if that would have been De Niro, a young De Niro, De Niro would have been nominated. You know what yeah, I mean? Because his yeah. reputation preceded him. It's that, it, it's, you know, masterful editing. The, this this tracking, scanning shot of going through the restaurant, through the oh. back door of this restaurant, which is is just like the beginning of uh, Touch of Evil, that yeah. shot of Orson Welles. It's just as iconic as that scene. And, and directors today are still studying how did he do that to go from, you know, and let Leota play the master narrator talking about all these wise guys or good fellas. Um, uh, but for me... Um, Scorsese's use of mo- of modern music yeah. is as great as anybody's. Jonathan Demme used to be really good at it, and he was really, Jonathan really good. Jonathan Demme was great at it. He, he was really, great. really was. But I think that Scorsese, because Scorsese, there's parts of the song Layla oh, yeah. that, that yeah. he actually changed the pitch of the song to fit the movement on the screen. There's yeah. little things like that. If you read the trivial things on IMDb, it kind of talks about little technical things but but he he played the music or thought of the music sometimes before the scenes themselves that's how his mind worked that's how and that's where i thought that the 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 editing in this film is just extraordinary and the stop action when the film stops for a second so that you, the narrator can kind of make his point they're jamming the the post office guy's head in the oven you know what i mean yeah stop yeah, exactly. Another letter again. <laughs> My wife said the gauche gauche decoration of the of the mob Italian houses in the 70s was just it, it was just so bad that it was they got good. It, they got it perfect. The like kishy, the, way the clothes that the wives would wear. Yeah. And, you know, and how like, you know, it's all good times, you know, knock a guy in the head and you can laugh about it. Right. But then how it all just degenerates and gets so horrible and awful where everywhere you look, somebody is trying to kill you. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's and I have to I have to say the character Maury, the rugs, the, the yeah. wig salesman, he was an annoying me, too. That, that, like, like at one point, I'm like, this guy's got to go. And eventually he did. Uh, I, I felt bad for poor Stacks. Yeah. Like Stacks, you got Samuel and, Jackson yeah. has a tiny role in this great but movie. It imp- an important role because it was, um, you know, Scorsese was severely criticized of how he treated um, black people in all of his films leading up to that. So much so that he insisted that the judge at the end was a black man. Uh, if, if You know what I mean? Like little things like that. Um, I, I, it's hard. I mean, I guess we have to look through the, the lens of racism yeah. As far as everything that permeates our society. But, you know, that's not a world that he grew up with. 
you know, he didn't grow up in, with, around a lot of black people. I'm sure he saw them growing up in New well, York City. But I, I, I heard Italians talk about them. But uh, but, you know, the Italians know. are just as racist as anybody. And they, he but yeah. the, the fact is he just he he showed what he witnessed yeah. and, and what he experienced. I think. The other thing, too, is while some people criticize that it romanticizes crime, I think it's the exact opposite. Does they, not. They start out this beautiful story. Everything's going all their way. They're young. They're attractive. They're blah, blah, blah. And it ends up they're all dead or in prison or yeah. going to be dead or rats, which is the worst thing that you possibly could be in the mob world is to be a rat. And let's face it, Henry Hill, the protagonist, who, by the way, was a, a complete asshole in real life. Nothing. And he didn't look anything like Ray Liotta either, no, by the not way. Not a thing. Who, who looked like a movie star. Um, but but it but there that's the criticism is that you know does this romanticize crime and to me no it doesn't it's the exact opposite it tells you that ultimately crime does not pay yes no. there are there are uh, there, it's exciting and there's but that you could get murdered where else what other uh, think about that it, it's just it's too much of a risk reward um, you know I, I always you you'll often hear me criticize biopics okay yeah right. Uh, and I think correctly so. I think you're right to do that. Because generally, they're, they're always about people, you know, they often make the mistake of making the movie while the person is still alive or recently passed away or because some actor can do a credible impression of right, that person. Right, right. But but in this case... We're talking about you, uh, what's his name, Mr. Fox? Mr. Fox, exactly. Who I like Jamie Fox too, by the way, but... But but the point is, is that in this movie, it is a biopic about someone we had known nothing about. I mean, there was yes. a book that was written about him. And if you read that book, you knew. But th this I, did, I did read the book. Yeah. This is not a guy who everybody knew. And that's why it's brilliant, because here's a biopic telling me things that I don't know about someone I've never comprehended or understood. So yeah. that's why this is such a brilliant movie and we did touch on joe pesci what's amazing is that a guy that little that small can be that intimidating that that you can fear him so much you know well, that's scary he's that much of a monster that was a brilliant performance you know in casino he basically was playing tony spilatro and tony spilatro was five foot two and he was one of the most fearsome mobsters that ever lived and yeah. so height doesn't matter in that game because as long as they have uh you know the backup that they have it's I, guts. I, I, the other, the other thing i wanted to say before we forget is i still to this day um think that it's one of the greatest displays of paranoia ever put yeah. committed to film, to any motion pictures. There's a couple other ones that are good like this, but this is really how he even speeds up the whole, uh, him having to get his brother out of the hospital to stir the sauce. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's doing lines over it while he's doing the dishes. And, 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 and it's just, it's getting faster and faster. To this day, whenever I see a helicopter, I go, Karen! Karen! <laughs> when the cops finally appear in front of his house it's yeah. almost a relief it really right. is because right. now it can finally end yeah. you know right. and then right. also i want to say too the scene where karen he wakes up and karen is pointing a gun at his head yeah. you know and he's just trying to like 
Hey, it's yeah, always right. been you, baby. I love you, Karen. She, you know, and then he gets the gun back, right. you know, and he points it at her. And I'll tell you something. That's an, a highly ironic scene. It really is. <laughs> well, in, I don't, a, I, I, in a crazy, psychosexual way. That's a very erotic scene. Well, well, let me just say, because, you know, I think there was like 36 actors that were in this film that were also in The Sopranos. It seems yeah. like in New, in New York filmmaking, you know, they must have the same uh, headshots of the These same 35 Italian-Americans, so, yeah. including, including the great Pauly Walnuts. But... Lorraine Bracco never looked better, and she's yes. she's an absolutely stunning woman. It, ironically, you know, an Italian playing a Jewish woman, but and Scorsese said because Lorraine actually grew up in a part of Brooklyn that was an all Jewish neighborhood, she knew, and she and she was able to kind of get in Karen's skin. Um, and her and, accent, if you listen to her accent, it is just pitch perfect. Well, what's her real? That's their, you know, that's it's the cool. same thing with with Ray Liotta. He grew up in Jersey, so that I just think that um, it, this is masterful filmmaking. If your your young folks out there want to learn about um, the great directors, there's some, there's a handful of guys that are so important. You know, Stanley Kubrick, you know, Terrence Malick. We talked about his films, but maybe nobody finer in the United States. Nothing against Spielberg. But then Scorsese. No, you're and Scorsese right. Right. was was not criticized after he made this film, just so you know, about being too much. Now, OK, enough with the gangster movies. That was when he made Casino. When he made Casino, people said, OK, enough. enough. Hey, why don't you make a song and dance picture? Yeah. You know, which, by the way, he's still a film that I think is one of his greatest films that no one even talks about is a film called Hugo which yeah, is Hugo, completely yeah. against type. And to me, it's one of his, you know, Raging Bull is his greatest work. Um, and of course, his work on uh, Taxi Driver is, you know, it's it's movie history. But and the pool player forces, wants to remember The Color of Money. The yeah, best the color, movie made about Correct, correct, correct. Yeah. Just an, an incredible career. And uh, uh, anyhow, I, I, I'm glad you liked it. To me, it's, it's, it's one of the greatest films ever made, simply. All right. So I got a movie for next week. All right. Really excited to revisit this one. And the movie is called Mediterraneo, a uh, story of an Italian regiment that is uh, sent to occupy an island in Greece. And uh, it is a comedy. It is a drama. It's a beautiful, wonderful movie, and I look forward to hearing what you have to say about it next week. Awesome. All right. That's a great choice. All right. So until then, we are the two peas in the podcast. I'll bang the drum slowly and play the five lowly. Play the dead march as they carry me along. Put bunches of roses all over my coffee. Roses to deaden the clouds as they fall. <laughs>